All right, so Genesis chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 1. So please uh, give your attention as I read God's word in your hearing this evening. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she, had, for she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So as we come now to this passage, we're just marching along, moving along in Genesis. Um, last time we looked at chapter 15, the entire chapter. Uh, and in that chapter, if you recall, uh, this comes probably, it feels like, almost immediately after the events of chapter 14. Because the way chapter 15 begins, it says, after these things. So that's usually an indicator in the narrative that this is kind of occurring in a short progression of time after the, the events spoken of. So in chapter 15, uh, Abram had, uh, by the Lord's help, of course, uh, achieved that great victory over those Canaanite kings and had rescued his nephew Lot, and uh, God appears to him and speaks to him. And uh, Abram uh, professes his doubts, if you will, right? If you remember... Uh, the Lord says to him, I am your reward. I am your, your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Because Abram did not take a reward from uh, the spoils of war that he won, God rewards him, if you will, by saying, I am your reward. 
And of course, Abram's like, well, what are you going to give me, Lord? Because I'm, I still have zero kids, <laughs> right? You promised me uh, children, as many as the sands of the sea, as many as the stars of the heavens, and still zero. The nursery that I built when I came into the land of Canaan is still empty. My crib has no baby in it. And uh, so what's going on here? So now you would think, okay, the Lord had delivered Abram. He delivered him out of Egypt. He brought him to this land. He delivered him in the battle of these five kings. He rewarded Abram when Abram made the wise choice to trust the Lord, that this was the place that the Lord wanted him to go. So you think Abram would be like, well, you know, Lord, you've been so good to me. I'm just going to trust and relax and, you know, and your promises will come when they come. Because that's exactly how we always act, right? <laughs> Whenever we see God's promises, we're always just like, yeah, sure. You know, I'm just going to chill and the Lord, no, right? We're impatient. And Abram, uh, you know, as, as all of us, is, is a, you know, shows forth his little, his little faith, his small faith. So the Lord uh, doesn't get angry with him, right? He condescends and... Uh, Re, uh, reassures Abram. He reiterates his promise to him. Says, "No, come out. Look at the stars. Count them if you can. That's how your descendants are going to be." And then he condescends to make a covenant. And this is very important because um, the Lord made a promise to Abram in chapter twelve, and now he confirms that promise in chapter fifteen when he cuts the covenant. Um, we talked about this before. Um, this, is, this is what I'm calling the sort of um, the ratification, if you will, of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace was promised way back in Genesis 3.15 after Adam fell. And the Lord says that there will be one who will come, the seed of the woman. That's the covenant of grace. So Adam failed in the covenant of works, and God says, I'm initiating a plan of redemption. It's going to be centered on this idea of the seed of the woman. And then that carries us through all the way up to the point of Abram, where God now says, okay, now I'm going to work through the family of one man, Abram. And, it's going to, and then his descendants will be the ones with whom I will covenant myself to. So the Lord promises Abram in chapter 12, and then ratifies that promise by actually making the covenant. If you remember how that covenant was made, was uh, Abram was to collect these animals, and he was he cuts them in half. And and the, the the practice was, you lay these animal carcasses, the halves, you know, and you make like a little pathway between them. And then each member of that covenant was to walk through them, and uh, symbolizing that they are taking upon themselves whatever it is that they agreed to. And, and uh, the idea behind the animals is that if I fail to keep my end of the covenant, may I be like these animals. That's the idea. Now, who walks through the, the animal carcasses, if you remember how the story goes? Where's, where's Abram on all of this? He's sleeping, right? The Lord puts him into a deep sleep. And then the Lord himself moves through the pieces. In fact, he moves as a smoking fire pot. And then think about that uh, in relation when we eventually get to Exodus. You know, you think of the pillar of fire and cloud that's uh, symbolic of the Lord. So the Lord in the pillar of fire and smoke walks through the animal halves while Abram's sleeping. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to take this covenant upon myself. I will bear 
the penalty should I fail to keep up mine of the covenant, you're going to be spared your inability to keep the covenant. So uh, it's, it's a unilateral covenant is what we see here. So, um, and then all of this is in a sense to reassure Abram's weak faith. So he not only says, you're, he reiterates the promise about descendants, and then he also reiterates the land promise because he says, uh, you know, at the end of the chapter, he says, uh, you will inherit this land. But then he also, if you remember, talks about what's going to happen to his descendants. His descendants will be uh, oppressed in a foreign land for 400 years, and then when they come back in the fourth generation, they will dwell in this land. So that's what happens last time. We have this picture of Abram, his faith being wavering, if you will, but then the Lord condescending to make a covenant and reassure him. So now we fast forward. We're not sure how long passes between chapter 15 and 16, but we see now Abram's faith is being tested again. <laughs> His faith is being tested again. And, and uh, again, centering around this promise of the children, right? You know, this, this, this thing with the descendants seems to be coming up over and over and over again in this story. And here we're going to see uh, four parts in this chapter. We're going to see Sarai comes up with a plan. Abram decides to relinquish and consent to the plan. We're going to see Hagar be mistreated and she flees. And then we're going to see at the end the God who sees all of these things. Okay, And um, the title I have here, well, in your outline I changed it, but I already printed out the outline, so I wasn't going to reprint it. But I'm calling this now the God who sees. That's what I'm calling this. I think on the hand I have God, or uh, Sarai, Abram, Hagar, and God, or whatever. But I'm calling this the God who sees, because really that's kind of what it focuses on, is at the end here, the God who sees. Because that's what Hagar calls him. <laughs> right? Hagar calls him, you are the God who sees. You saw me in my affliction, and, and you came to me. But we have to get up to that point. So, um, as we look at this tonight, uh, we're going to see that the Lord is faithful to his covenant, even when people like Abram and ourselves are often faithless. Um, first, let's look at verses 1 and 2 again as we see Sarai's plan. So, Sarai and Abram, uh, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. So again, coming off the heels of chapter 15, in which Abram uh, has his faith reassured, in which the Lord uh, announces to him again that he is blessed beyond measure, right? Uh, Abram uh, I am your shield. We looked at the, that concept last week or last time. I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. Abram's faith is tested again. Now, we know this from the New Testament, right? What does James say in the opening verses of his book in James chapter 1? It says, count it all joy when what? When your faith is, when you come under various trials, when, you, when your faith is tested. So, again, notice a couple things when James says that. He says, count it all joy. So we should, when we face trials, we should be joyful, right? right? Which oftentimes we're not. But 
And then notice he also says, count all joy when, right? So trials happen. That's a fact of life. That's just living in a fallen world filled with fallen people. But trials come, and the goal of the trial is a test of our faith, right? It would be great if we could just say, yeah, I believe in the Lord, and then you could just sit back and kick your feet up and not have to worry about anything. But the point is, is that life, everyday life, is a test of our faith. Everyday life is a test of our faith. And, and, and the more our faith is tested, the stronger it becomes. That's the point, right? That's the point with what James says. Counter all joy when you face various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces, depending on your translation, endurance, steadfastness, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then steadfastness produces character. And then character produces perfection or maturity. So the idea is as your faith is tested in the fires of everyday life, as these trials come, your faith is strengthened. It's like a muscle, that a spiritual muscle that gets worked out all the time. If you didn't work out, if you didn't do any kind of exercise, even if it's just like walking or whatever, it's like, you know, you just become a flabby mess, right? So, you know, the idea is strengthening that faith muscle. Um, think of Job, right? You know, was Job tested? Yeah, of course he was tested. So this is a test of Abram's faith. How is he going to handle the fact that God promises him children, yet, as we see in verse um, 3, we'll get there in a moment, but in verse 3, he's 10 years in the land of Canaan. 10 years, okay? Now, you may think, well, I mean, come on, the dude lived 175. How long is 10 years? That's just a fraction of his life. Well, but how long is 10 years for us, right? You know, <laughs> you know I've been here four years, and, and you know, it's, uh, you know, 10 years in the land of Canaan. You know, it's like the Lord calls him. It's like, look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. 10 years later, zero children still. Zero children. 10 years in the land of Canaan. So he's, he's, he's being tested. His faith is being tested. Are you going to trust the promise of God in this case? And here the test takes the form of barrenness, right? I mean, verse 1 highlights the problem right away. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. In the previous chapter, look at the heavens. Are you able to count the stars? That's how your descendants will be. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. All right, so I don't know how many stars are in the sky when you were to look up, but if you have zero, uh, you know, how many do you think you have to start producing in order to get close to the stars in the sky? Uh, this is highlighting, in a sense, if you will, her pain, if you will. Uh, so it's not just a trial for Abram. It's a trial for Sarai, too. Because I'm sure Sarai knew these promises. I'm sure Abram said, the Lord promised you're going to have a child. We're going to have chi children coming out through the cracks and the walls and everything. We'll have so many kids. It'll be all over the place. So I'm sure she knew this. But here, she's barren. Even though three times... Chapter 15, verse 5. Chapter 13, verse 6. Chapter 12, verse 2. The Lord had promised that Abram's descendants would be vast. They would be numerous, beyond counting. And, and we have to understand, particularly in this culture, uh, barrenness was a stigma. 
Okay, you've probably heard this before, but if you were barren, you're often considered not blessed, if you will. Okay, um, and, and 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 this is—I may have mentioned this before earlier in our study through Genesis, but each woman we're going to come across. So Sarai or Sarah, uh, Rebecca, Rachel. Uh, all of them suffer from barrenness for a time, right? And all of them are under the stigma. In fact, you know, I think of Rachel when she cries out to Jacob, give me children or I die. You know, it's like, and Jacob's like, uh, trying. <laughs> he says, I, I'm not in the place of God. I can't open the womb. You know, I can only do my part. Um, give me children or I die. Think of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Think of, you know, barrenness seems to be a particular test in the godly line, if you will. And I think part of that is to show that this godly line is something that God himself is doing, right? Because um, Isaac, when he's born, when we see that happening, it's a miracle child, in a sense. Because when Sarah hears the that she's going to bear a child at 90-something years old, what does she do? She starts to laugh. It's like, okay, you know, tell me another one. That's a good joke. Um, no, but having children was considered in this culture to be blessed. So if you had no children, you were considered probably under a curse or under some kind of punishment. In fact, when we get to it, what does Hagar do the minute she finds out that she's uh, conceived and, and is pregnant? She begins to look at Sarah and says, you know, well, with this, you know, with disrespect in her eyes. You know, it's like, I don't know what your problem is. I was with him one night, and I'm, you know, we conceived. So, you know, uh, so it's, I guess the the fault is yours, Sarah. So Sarah concocts a plan. All right, we need to help God out here, right? God made a promise, and we need to do something about this so that you know my husband can have children so apparently I'm not going to be the vehicle through which he's going to have these children and I, I can imagine her thinking that right I can imagine the thoughts going through Sarah's mind alright well the Lord made the promise to Abram my husband maybe I'm not the one to give him these children so you know now we're going to find out later right in chapter 16, or 17 or 18 that no 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 your your wife is going to bear you the child right but at this point maybe she doesn't know that maybe she doesn't think that if you look at all the promises it's god says to abram your descendants will be as numerous as stars of the sky he didn't say that it's going to come through sarah necessarily so she's thinking well maybe i'm not part of the plan so i need to come up with a plan we need, to, we need to do something about this. We've got to help God out. Now, what's wrong with Sarah's plan? Let's take a vote. What's wrong with Sarah's plan? What are some of the things that are wrong with Sarah's plan? What do you guys think? All right, so she's not trusting in God's promises. So it shows a lack of faith. That's, that's one of the I have three things here. That's one of them. So it shows a lack of faith and trust in the Lord to keep his promises. What else? What's that? Okay. You can't help God. Okay. What else? Right. So it violates God's plan for marriage that he gives way back in Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
All right, you bring Hagar into the situation. Is it now a one flesh union? No, it's a, I don't know what you would call it. It's a one and a half flesh, a three flesh, I don't know. You've got, you've got an extra party involved here. So it violates God's plan for marriage. Now there's one here you may not guess, but think about it. Okay, twice we're told here, where is Hagar from? She's Egypt. Okay, she's Egyptian. Now, where did, where did they get her? Well, he was in Egypt earlier, so maybe perhaps that she came along when they returned back to Canaan. What is Egypt in the mind of the Bible? From the mind of the Bible writers, what is Egypt? It's always a source of temptation for God's people, right? What, what were the Israelites doing when they were wandering 40 years in the wilderness after they had been released from Egypt? What did they do a lot? They complained, right? <laughs> what did they complain about? Yeah, oh, how good we had it back in Egypt. Oh, you know, the food. We had, we had all kinds of food. We had three squares, and now you brought us out here to die, and yada, yada, and so on and so forth. So Egypt is always serves as sort of a temptation. God's people are always tempted to, in a sense, either literally or metaphorically turn to Egypt because Egypt is always seen as blessing, right? When, when there's a famine in the land of Canaan, where's their bread in chapter 12? Well, there's bread in Egypt, right? So Abram leaves the land of promise to go to Egypt where the bread is because there's a famine in the land. So Egypt is always seen as something to lure God's people away. It's, the, it's, it's like symbolic of the lure of the world, okay? The, or, or tempting with the eyes, if you will. Another thing, I, I, I just thought about this and I have it mentioned later, but you know, was, was Hagar ever consulted about this plan? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> She says, here, have, have my, my maid. And she's like, oh, gee, thanks for asking me. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, maybe that might be part of the reason why uh, she held her in contempt later on. But So you got these problems with Sarah's plan. It violates God's plan for marriage. It shows a lack of faith in the promises of God. And it's symbolic of God's people always looking back to Egypt, where, where things are better, where things are fruitful. And in, in this case, uh, literally so, right? You know, the... the the woman who is his actual wife is barren, but the woman from Egypt is apparently not barren. And she recognizes here too, right? Look at verse 2. Sarah says to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. So she knows enough to know that her barrenness is in some way, shape, or form at least providentially orchestrated by God. You know, she doesn't say, I'm being punished by God. She just says, the Lord restrained, right? It's like what Job says in the, you know, when he loses everything. Well, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? It's a recognition that, for whatever reason, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Again, this is something that we see often. Uh, I've got some verses here. I'm not going to go through them all. But uh, basically, as I mentioned, all the women who are married to the men in the line of promise experience some form of barrenness, whether it's prolonged or just a short period of time. But they all experience some form of barrenness. Again, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the, the wives of the three patriarchs. 
So he tells, she tells the plan to Abram. I got a plan. We're going to help the Lord along here. And what does Abram do? At the end of verse 2, Abram heeded the voice of Sarah, or Sarai. So it's easy, of course, to walk by sight and not by faith. That's exactly what's going on here. All right, I can't bear children. Let's see, maybe my, my Egyptian maid has, will have better luck. So Abram, here's my plan. And Abram's like, all right, <laughs> whatever, sure. Okay, let's go with the plan. Let's do the plan. Easy to walk by sight, not by faith. Waiting on the Lord's timing is very difficult, right? Can I get an amen for that one? Waiting on the Lord's timing is very, very difficult. Easy in that time as you're waiting on the Lord's promise to give into temptation. Well, maybe I need, maybe I, maybe I'm not getting what I what the I feel the Lord has promised me because I need to do something. So you, you're tempted to do something. I think that's what's going on here. Maybe you know she's like, okay, well. The Lord has promised my husband many children. I'm obviously not the one giving him the children. Maybe I need to give him my Egyptian maid. Right? Easy to give him the temptation. But note here how Abram falls into the same trap as Adam. Turn back, please, to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, of course, is the story of the fall. God plants a garden in Eden, puts Adam in there, makes Eve out of his side. Together, they are given the covenant uh, to tend the garden. You may eat of all the trees except for the one in the middle. And then, almost right off the bat, we see here, Satan comes in, chapter 3, verse 1. And he begins to tempt Eve. Notice he doesn't go for Adam. He goes for Eve. And then verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And then look at that last sentence. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then just flip down to verse 16. No, sorry, 17. So after the fall, after the curse, when God comes and begins to pronounce the judgments, verse 17, then, Adam to, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, so on and so forth. It's almost the same language there, right? Who was responsible in the garden to guard and keep it primarily? Whose main responsibility was it? Adam's responsibility. Now, when Eve offers him the fruit of the tree that God specifically told him, don't eat from that tree, what should Adam have done? He should have, like, smacked the fruit out of her hands. Like, don't give that to me, woman. <laughs> Stop. I just told you. That's the tree we should not eat from. What does he do? He heeds the voice of his wife. What does God say to him? Because you heeded the voice of your wife. What does Abram do in chapter 16, verse 3? He heeded the voice of his wife. I'm not blaming women here. The point is, is that Abram should have known. It's like, no, nah, this is a bad plan. We should trust the Lord here in this one. That's the proper response, right? But then how long has Abram been in the land of Canaan? 
10 years. He's waiting. He's waiting. It's like, oh, well, maybe this is not a bad plan after all. The Lord does not... Okay. <laughs> I was about to say something, but I'm going to pause before I say it. Because what is one of the things that you almost always hear is a quote from the Bible is not a quote from the Bible. The Lord helps those who helps themselves, right? <laughs> that's, that's one, for some reason, even today, people are like, oh, the Lord helps those who helps themselves. It's like, well, that's like zero places in the Bible. All right? There, how many places is that in the Bible? Zero places. Zero places in the Bible. The Lord does not help those who help themselves. Now, I'm not saying the Lord doesn't want us to work hard, right? Look at the Proverbs, you know, the, the one who works hard will be rewarded. But not when it comes to the Lord's promises. The Lord does not help those who, helps them, who help themselves. So, well, we already looked at it a little bit. But in verses 3 and 4, we see Abram consent to the plan. We already saw at the end of verse 2, Abram heeded the voice of Sarah, his wife. Then verse 3, then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes, uh, or in her sight. So... You almost have, I, I hate to kind of do this because you don't really want to psychoanalyze the characters of the Bible because you don't really know unless the Lord tells you, but you can almost feel like Abram consents because Sarai wants children. The whole plan is that, you know, that Hagar will bear children for her, right? I mean, that's the point. And there was precedent for this back in those days, you know, this kind of custom where the servant... Uh, the children of the servant would be considered the children of, of the, uh, the actual couple. So that's why she says uh, in verse 2, I shall obtain children by her. So maybe Abram's thought is, well, happy life, happy wife, right? Happy wife, happy life, isn't that how the saying goes? <laughs> happy wife, happy life, okay? She wants children really bad. This is her plan. I guess I'll go along with it because if I don't, then I'm going to be accused of not giving her what she wants, which is children. So perhaps Abram, instead of trusting in the, God, in the promises of God, he's seeking peace at home and agrees and consents to Sarah's plan. And we mentioned this before. He's been there 10 years, 10 years of waiting, 10 years of trusting. Um, in fact, he even got a covenant, right? We saw this in chapter 15. The Lord says, I will do this thing for you. And I will make a promise that I will do this thing for you. So all of this is weighing in on him. But Abram here, we see, failed in leading his family and trusting the Lord. It was his responsibility to make sure that the family trusts in the Lord. Just like it was Adam's responsibility to keep intend the garden and to guard that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So just as Adam was responsible, uh, his sin is greater, even though it was Eve who was the first one who was tempted, Adam's sin is greater because he bears a greater responsibility. Same thing here with Abram. His sin is, in a sense, greater because he should be the one trusting in the promises of the Lord. Now, the plan 
works. I'm going to put works in quotes. Okay? The plan works, right? So Hagar conceives. That's what we see. Verse 4. She went, so he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So the plan works. Sarah's plan works. Hagar conceives. And when Hagar saw that she had conceived while her mistress was still barren, Hagar here says despise. The word in Hebrew means uh, treated her with contempt. Um, as I said, maybe part of that is born in the fact that she wasn't consulted in any of this. It's like, well, okay, fine, but you know, I have children and you don't. Yeah, I'm fruitful. You cannot give your husband children. So she has contempt in her eyes here. Now, who's to blame in all this? Everybody, right? <laughs> right? Everyone's to blame. There's enough sin to go around here. Sarah's plan shows a lack of faith. Abram's consent shows a lack of leadership. Hagar's contempt shows a lack of respect for her mistress. Everyone is at fault here. No one is not at fault here. Everyone is at sin here. Everyone has failed in this scenario. You probably don't see these things, so I'm not even sure why I'm mentioning this, but I'll mention it anyway. There's a little meme going around. In the, back in the 60s, there was a Spider-Man cartoon on TV, and there's a meme that you have like three Spider-Men, they're all pointing at each other. You know, which one is the real Spider-Man? Well, that's kind of what's going on here. It's like, who's at fault? Everyone's pointing at everyone else, and, and it's like, well, everyone's at fault. We're all fallen and broken people, right? We're all fallen and broken people. Abram is a fallen, broken person. Sarah's a fallen, broken person. Hagar's a fallen, broken person. So enough blame to go around. So now what happens? Verses 5 and 6, Hagar flees. Then Sarah said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarah, Indeed, your maid is in your hands. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. All right. Now, who didn't see this coming? <laughs> who doesn't see this coming, right? You know, it's like, this is my great plan. Here, sleep with my maid. All right, the maid has a child. What, is, what, what are the first words out of Sarah's mouth? My wrong be upon you. <laughs> what happened in the garden? The woman you gave me. <laughs> the serpent you put in the garden. Right? That's just pointing the finger. She complains. Now, now, if I'm Abram, I'd be like, this was your plan, okay? <laughs> Why are you yelling at me? This was your plan. What did you expect to happen? What did you want to happen? But Sarah, it's like, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. What is Abram's response? I'll do whatever you want. Treat her however you want. I don't care. Just leave me alone. <laughs> Just leave me alone. I, I, I don't want to deal with this. Do with her as you please. So now they're doubling down on their sin. 
Okay, so not only did Sarah show a lack of faith, Abram show a lack of uh, leadership, and Hagar show a lack of respect. Now, Sarah points the finger at Abram. Abram's like, I don't care. Do whatever you want. Whatever. Again, this was the plan, right? Didn't Sarai want a child for Abram through Hagar? Yes. What happens? Well, the plan, as I said, works. And I think this just shows, right, we can either walk by the flesh or walk by the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians. You either walk by the flesh or you walk by the Spirit, right? If you, if you, or you, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, you either walk by faith or you walk by sight. Now, here's the rub. If you remember back in Genesis 12, 3, um, God said, I will bless those who bless you, right? And through you or in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram is meant to be a blessing to the nations. Where's Hagar from again? Remind me, I forgot. Egypt, okay. Is that considered some of the, one of the nations? It's not considered one? No, it is one of the nations. <laughs> What's that? In the, any nation. It's one of, yeah, it's one of, it's one of the nations. It's just any one of the nations, right? Someone who's not Jewish. It's, a, you know, it's like, yeah. Uh, Abram was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Here he's driving Hagar back to Egypt because of his lack of leadership in this case. Now, again, now all of this, remember, waiting on the Lord is hard. Right? We mentioned this before. Uh, when God says, wait, what does Satan say to us? Now. Right? When God says, have faith, what does Satan say? Take matters into your own hands. Right? You, need to, you need to do something. Was the, was the end of having children a bad thing? No. Was the means that they went to have children, was that bad? Yes, right? It's just sin upon sin upon sin. It's, it's not just one sin here. Again, we looked at this. It's at least five or six different sins going on here. Satan tries to get us to pursue godly ends through ungodly means. Right? Have you ever heard the phrase, right, the ends justify the means? In other words, as long as what I want to accomplish is righteous, I don't, it doesn't matter how I get there. Do you think God operates on that? calculus? No. God wants us to achieve godly ends through godly means. He doesn't want us to shortcut his plan. He doesn't want us to, to uh, take uh, ungodly steps in order to accomplish a godly end. Because if you take ungodly steps, what is that to accomplish an end? Then it doesn't make the end righteous. It just means that yeah, you accomplish something that somebody else may see good, but then if they realize you took all kinds of evil steps to get there, no, we have to pursue godly ends through godly means. And in this case, obviously, no, it's, I'm saying this, and it's easier said than done, right? It's easy for me to sit up here and say, well, Abram should have waited, blah, 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 you know. You know we, we're all on that boat, right? Um, we all walk by sight often, more often than we ought to. But now we see here in the final point, which is the biggest point, 
at least it's the biggest in the sense that it's the most verses, 7 through 16, where here the Lord sees. Now, it's interesting because I'm just looking here. Okay. Well, okay, outside of the fact that Sarai invokes the name of the Lord to judge between her and Abram, you don't really see the Lord until verse 7. Okay, verses one through six, that's all Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. That's all them working in the flesh. That's all them doing their thing. And then look at verse seven. Now the angel of the Lord found her, that is Hagar, who fled by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to Hagar, and he, well, and he said, Hagar, Sarah's mate, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, my first thought would be if I heard a voice from an angel of the Lord who knew me my name, I would probably think that he probably knew where I came from and where I was going. But, I mean, does the Lord need to know this? No. No, it's like when he said, when God walks in the garden after Adam's sin, and he says, Adam, where are you? Is he actually looking for Adam? It's like, where are you, Adam? I don't see. No. Where, you know, he knows where Adam is, right? Adam's hiding, because that's what sin does. It makes us hide. But here he says, I would imagine this is probably a little more tenderly. Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from? Where are you going? And she says, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. <clears throat> the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her, or submit yourself under her hand. So here the Lord commands Sarai, or Hagar, I should say, to repent, right? Return to your mistress, submit yourself under hand. Repent and go back and submit yourself to her, okay? In other words, I'm going to fix this problem. Now, a couple things here. First, we see this figure called the angel of the Lord. Now, almost always... I'm not going to say always because I can. I know of a few example uh, exceptions. I just don't know where they are. I forget where they're located. But almost always, when you see the angel of the Lord, it is actually the Lord, right? Uh, and 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 that that phrase there, the Malak Adonai, or the Malak Yahweh, or the Malak Jehovah, it's the angel, a messenger of the Lord. Um, almost every time you see it, it is a theophany. But actually. It's really a, what we call a Christophany. In other words, it's a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. right? Because it's always the second person of the Trinity who is the one who makes God known to us. right? If you remember from John's Gospel, uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, the word in the beginning was the word, and so on. And at the end, in, in verse 18, it says, uh, and uh, this one who is... In the bosom of the Father, he has come to make him known. The, 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 the goal is that the second person of the Trinity comes to make and reveal the Father. Remember what he says to Philip in the upper room. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So the point is that whenever God makes a physical appearance, whether it's incarnate in Jesus or pre-incarnate in this angel of the Lord, it is almost always understood to be the second person of the Trinity who comes to make the Father known, who comes to reveal God. So he, this angel of the Lord, I'm, I'm assuming, appears in a physical form, or at the very least is, is verbally manifest. 
He speaks to her. But now here, another thing too. Notice that in all of this, right, Sarai treats Hagar uh, shamefully. Abram treats Hagar shamefully. But it's the Lord who comes to her, right? It's the Lord who seeks her and finds her. It's the Lord who sees her. It's the Lord who hears her. It's the Lord who cares for her. I'm going to turn, um, please turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 146. If you have subtitles or headings in your Bible, you might have um, the heading over Psalm 146, which says, The happiness of those whose help is the Lord. And this is the first of what they call the Hallel Psalms, the Psalms of Praise. It's the final five Psalms in the Psalter. They all begin with Praise the Lord, they all end with Praise the Lord. But here you read, uh, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul, while I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Now, if I, as I'm reading that, you probably heard things in here, right? Blessed is the one, or happy is the one whose hope is in the Lord. And then you see that he executes justice for the oppressed, right? He gives food to the hungry. He raises those who are bowed down. He opens the eyes of the blind. He watches over strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. The Lord is the one who cares. The Lord is the one who seeks these things out, right? When the Lord gave, when God gave the commandments to Israel, he specifically says in numerous places, care for the widow, care for the orphan, care for the fatherless, care for the stranger in your land, care for these people. And here's the Lord exactly doing that same thing as he comes to Hagar in her moment of her greatest need. Here she is, cast out of her home. She's in the middle of the wilderness somewhere. She's pregnant. She's trying to find her way back to Egypt. And the Lord finds her. The Lord hears her. The Lord sees her. The Lord cares for her. It's almost as if, you know, kind of reminiscent, if you will. And I'm not going to look at it, but just we'll talk about it briefly. It's kind of reminiscent of how the Lord seeks out in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, the woman at the well. If you remember that story in John chapter 4. Um, the disciples are going from Judea back up to Galilee, but in between is the land of Samaria. Now, normally, the Jew, what he would do is he would do everything 
humanly possible to avoid stepping foot in Samaria. So he would go around it, right? But they go through it. And Jesus says, it is necessary that I do this. You're like, that's weird to hear that. It's like, it's necessary that I do this. And disciples, well, you know, they're oftentimes clueless, like, like a lot of us are. It's like, okay, well, sure, let's go through Samaria, whatever. All right, so they go through Samaria. And then the disciples go off to buy food. What does Jesus do? He seeks, right? He goes to an outcast woman. He seeks her out. He hears her. He sees her. He cares for her. He speaks to her. He speaks to this woman who is out there in the heat of the day, this woman who is uh, considered to be a prostitute, who had five husbands, and the woman that, the man that she's living with at this time is not her husband. Um, so she goes out in the middle of the day, in the, at the, the hottest point of the day. Why? Because no one else is going out at that time. <laughs> right? No one else is going out at the time. So she can avoid whatever ridicule, whatever scorn would be heaped upon her. But Jesus is there. And Jesus seeks her out. And Jesus treats her tenderly. In both of these cases, in the case of the angel of the Lord coming to Hagar, or Jesus, the incarnate Lord, coming to this woman at the well, in both cases, the Lord here is comforting the outcast. This is the character of the, the God that we worship. He comforts the outcast. Notice, too, again, the activity of the Lord. The Lord is doing all the activity here. He finds her in verse 7. He hears her complaint. In fact, that's why Ishmael is called Ishmael, because the word Ishmael means the Lord hears or God hears. Right? You know, you get the word Shema. That's to, to hear. And it's it's in the command that you see in Deuteronomy six when, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, hear, Shema, Ishmael. Uh, so his name is, in fact, the child's name is the Lord hears or God hears. He finds her, he hears her, he sees her affliction, verse 13. That's why she says, you are the God who sees. That's a great name for God, isn't it? The God who sees. <laughs> right? Because oftentimes we don't think that the Lord sees. The God who sees. So the Lord commands her to return, submit to Sarah, and then he blesses her. That's what you see in verses 10 through 12. It says, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. It's kind of the same promise he gives Abram, <laughs> right? And, and that, that's what he promises Hagar. You know, and, and really, this is what you see here, is the Lord redeeming the bad plans of Abram, Sarah, and, and so on, right? This is the Lord redeeming these bad plans here. So he blesses her. Now, we know that, you know, Ishmael uh, ends up being the progenitor of who? Right? Who, who's, Ab who's Ishmael the father of? Uh, right, the, the Arab people. Right? He's the, he is considered the, the progenitor of the Arab people. Now, you know, both the Jews and the Arabs consider Abraham their father, right? But how many sons did Abram actually have? Well, he had more than two, but two we really talk about here. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael comes, is believed to be the progenitor of the Arab people. So you see here, he's going to be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. What does that sound like? Uh, you know, turning on Fox News and seeing the current news about the Middle East. You know, is... <laughs> 
Are the Arab people against every man? Is every man's hand against them? Seems like it. <laughs> Seems every time you turn the newspaper or whatever, something's happening in the Middle East. So yeah, he's, she's going to give birth to Ishmael, who will give birth to Arab people, who have been, are, and will be a thorn in the side of Israel. Right? It, that's, see, that's the problem when you take the Lord's promises into your own hands, right? You know, the Lord promises to do something for you, and you're like, okay, Lord, I'm going to help you along, right? And then you help him along, and then you end up making a worse mess out of it than if you just trusted in the Lord, right? But here again, then we see Hagar, she glorifies the Lord, right? She calls him the God who sees. She names the well there about, you know, she's basically, this is the well of the God who sees, um, and she calls upon the name of the Lord. And then we see that eventually Hagar bears uh, Abram a son, who then is named Ishmael. And we see that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram, which would make sense, right? He left home at 75. He's been there 10 years, and then uh, Ishmael's born when he's 86, so about nine months to a year. So that's the passage. What do we think about this? Well, we see again Abram's faith is tested. And unlike chapter 13, unlike chapter 14, Abram fails in this test. You know, that's the story, that's the story of our lives, isn't it, right? You know, one day you're like, oh, this is a great day. And the next day, oh, this is lousy. You know, one, you know, oftentimes it feels like walking for the Lord. You take one step forward, two steps back, right? You know, that's uh, just the way it is. Uh, it's a good thing that this was a unilateral covenant, right? <laughs> it's a good thing that the Lord said, I, I will take this. I, I know, Abram, you're too weak. You, you can't handle this covenant. I'll take the covenant for you. His faith was tested. He fails this time. His sin has enormous consequences. Right? That's the thing, too. Um, Galatians 6 says, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap to the flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap to the Spirit. This was not something that the Lord's going to say, okay, I'll, you know, I'll take care of it. No, this has great consequences. This has great consequences. The Jewish people are suffering the consequences of this choice today, right? I mean, the, all of the conflict that you see in the Middle East, in a sense, uh, is born of this, um, basically this failure on Abram's part to trust in the Lord. And we'll see uh, how God remains faithful, even though Abram's faith falters in chapters 17 and 18. But again, in, in our fallen state, we often want to help God along. Right. Okay. I'm gonna. Uh, I feel like this is where the Lord wants me, so I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna work. I'm gonna help him. Right. God helps those who help themselves. We grow impatient, waiting for His promises. We're lured by the fruitfulness of Egypt. Right. Just as you know, Hagar is symbolic of that luring away of the fruitfulness of Egypt. We're ten, we're tempted to uh, follow and go to promise of Egypt. It's fruitful there. There's bread there. We want to achieve godly ends through ungodly means, and that's not how it works. But through it all, we see here, while Abram was faithless, while Sarai had a bad plan, while Hagar was disrespectful, we see here who's faithful in all of this? Who's the hero of this story? 
It's God, right? He's the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who cares, the God who finds. He comes to Hagar in her moment of greatest need, and he uh, helps her, and he delivers her from this uh, situation. His plans are never thwarted, right? It wasn't, this, this did not catch the Lord off guard. Right? This is, and it's not going to thwart his plans for Isaac, as we'll see in chapters uh, coming uh, ahead, Lord willing. Praise the Lord that Jesus Christ, though, did not fall for Satan's temptations. Right? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what was the goal of Satan's temptations, really, there in that wilderness temptation after his baptism? Well, the shortcut. God's plan, right? God wanted to deliver us through Jesus coming into the world, going and being obedient to the point of death and going through the cross. That's how salvation, that's how redemption would be accomplished, Jesus going through the cross. And then he gets the glory. Then he gets the crown. Then he gets the uh, exaltation. But he's got to go through the road of suffering. He's got to go through, as Psalm 23, 4 says, he's got to go through the valley of the shadow of death before he can feast and, uh, at the end of that, right? Satan's temptations were, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth now. I'll, I'll give them to you now. Just worship me now, okay? You don't have to go to the cross. No muss, no fuss. Don't worry about it, right? It's, it's to get Jesus to shortcut God's plans, Aren't you glad Jesus didn't fall for that temptation? I'm glad Jesus didn't fall to that temptation. So just as the Lord comes to Hagar in the moment of her greatest need, the Lord, through the person of Jesus Christ, comes to us in our moment of greatest need to bring promise and blessing to us. Just as he promises and brings blessing and promise to Hagar, uh, and delivers her from her situation. The Lord, through Jesus Christ, comes to us, delivers us from our situation, brings promise and blessing to us through faith in Christ. All of grace, all of mercy.